that just is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 15th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Obama's approval ratings. You don't hear about those anymore, do you? Remember during the midterms? Man, those approval ratings, they were they're practically reported on a real-time ticker right below the show you were watching. And I mean, that's even true if you were watching Man vs. Food or Dating Naked or The Real Housewives of Rowan County, Kentucky. Now, you don't hear about the approval ratings. It's almost as if the media didn't really care about the displeasure of the American public, but just wanted a crude yardstick to talk about the horse race of the elections. Okay, fine. Well, the approval ratings have narrowed. There's still more disapproval than approval. On Election Day 2014, there was about a 10-point gap. Now it's about five. But I think I know how Obama can make up that 5%. Really, what we're talking about is just changing the minds of 2.6% because you get them the flip. And then you're in approval instead of disapproval ratings. And if you get approved, they let you get to be on the currency. And then we wait 100 years and we decide that you're a horrible person. Who knows? By 2015, Obama was a vegetarian. That could kill his reputation then. Anyway, now here's my insight. Here's who doesn't like Obama who he could get. And he thinks he's getting them, but he's doing it all wrong. It's the parents of high school students who are applying to college. Because right now, Malia Obama is applying to college and visiting colleges, and Obama's talking about it. And I think he thinks he's doing a really good job. I think he thinks he's saying wise things and coming off as relatable when he says, quote, one piece of advice that I've given her is not to stress too much about having to get into one particular college. Just because it's not some name brand, fancy, famous school doesn't mean you're not going to get a great education there. I think every parent in America going through this process is saying, please, she is the first daughter. If she weren't the first daughter, she'd still be someone who attends one of the top, most expensive private schools in America. And if she weren't the first daughter attending a top private school, she'd still be really, really great, shall we say, for diversity. Malia Obama is not only getting into every college she applies to, she's probably going to get into colleges she didn't apply to. She's probably going to take the spot of you, of your daughter, of your less educated, less diverse, less first daughter. So these people are thinking, Obama, yeah, sure, the economy is turning around, and I guess cash for clunkers worked out. But on this thing, the college thing, disapprove. Disapprove. On the show today, I spiel about the widespread disapproval of the bat flip that thrilled a nation. But first, what a pairing, munitions and menstrual cups. Yes, this is why the gist is unique in the media, I would say. Longtime listeners to this show know that I love weird comparisons. Like anything that's fluid fitting into however many Olympic swimming pools, by the way, the depth is not standard, or how many oil tankers, or about the size of Belgium. But I think I just found my newest jam when it comes to comparing things to other things. It's tampons. Just imagine the amount of waste created by one woman using disposable products. Well, we calculated it. It's about 12,000 tampons. 
Placed end-to-end, -end, that's three times the height of the Empire State Building. That was from a Kickstarter campaign for something called the Lily Cup. The Lily Cup, the Diva Cup. If you are perhaps not of my gender, you know what these are. These are menstrual cups that are stocked in such stores as Walmart and CVS. Well, now there are Kickstarters for renewable menstrual cups here to take us, take me, take me, I'll admit it, take me through this thing that I never knew existed before today is L.V. Anderson. Hello, Laura. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. I'm so ignorant. I didn't even know that there was an alternative to pads or the pearl. I've heard about the pearl. How popular is the cup? Great question. I do not know. I have to imagine it's like less than 5% market share. But does every woman know about this and like have a friend who's maybe talked about it? I I think word of mouth is important for menstrual cups. I personally found out about menstrual cups when a friend told me about how great they were. And then I immediately went out and got one and was very happy with it. But menstrual cups themselves have been around for a decade. And pretend there's someone in this room who's totally ignorant and you insert them. Here's, here's what I don't know. Which way does the opening go? It goes towards your body, right? Yeah, it, yeah, because it has to collect the menstrual fluid. It's a small so cup. So you compress made, it. Yes. Put it you, in there and then it opens up and collects. It's made out of silicone, so mm -hmm. it's flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't see my fingers right now, but they're maybe like two, two and a half inches apart. It's pretty small. It holds an ounce of fluid. You sort of fold it up, insert it into your vagina. It sits kind of like in the middle of your vagina. I mean, it, it sort of like warms up and finds a place so that it is not just like sliding around all over the place in there. And you can leave it in for up to 12 hours. It collects your menstrual fluid. When you're ready to empty it, you just empty it into the toilet and then rinse it out with soap and water and put it back in. You reuse it. In between cycles, you many women will boil their cup to kill all possible bacteria and just keep it clean. Manufacturers usually say, you know, we recommend replacing it every year, but from experience and just from talking to other women, I mean, you can use it if you take care of it for years. It, it is really like, it's definitely reusable. How much do they cost? 40 bucks. Okay. So you'd want to reuse it. And by the way, if these things ever get more than 5% penetration share, you know we're going to see the saucy NBC sitcom where the clueless guy goes into the dishwasher and it's like, oh, I found this small shot glass. And hilarity <laughs> will ensue. You are not supposed to clean them in the dishwasher. You're supposed to use, uh, you know, like fragrance-free soap in order to prevent chemicals from from damaging it but i mean they're pretty hardy really they're okay so what's the but what's the cutting edge of menstrual cups now you just told me about this thing i never knew existed now take me to the next generation okay so what people have been talking about over the past couple of weeks is a product called loon cup mm -hmm. which is on kickstarter has already met its funding goal it is a quote-unquote smart menstrual cup, which means that it contains... They're disrupting menstrual cups. Yes. <laughs> a battery, a sensor, and an antenna yeah. uh, that goes out of the bottom of the cup. There's like a little stem at the bottom of menstrual cups. So the antenna goes out of the bottom of the cup, connects wirelessly to your smartphone, and gives you information about how much fluid your body is shedding yeah. and tells you when the cup is about to be full and also allegedly tells you what color your menstrual fluid is. Yeah. Now, I personally am a little bit skeptical with this product. 
as far as I know, they don't have a working prototype. And I'm a little skeptical that people are going to be getting this uh, their smart menstrual cups in the mail anytime soon. Yeah. I also am not at all clear on why anyone would want those features. Well, that's the thing. Even if for the, putting electronics inside your body, and thank God you said it wirelessly connects to your right. iPhone. Because <laughs> that could be that there could, no that could be a crimp in your commute. It would definitely crimp your commute. But I, it seems like the whole marketing is about saving the environment and also the the, you, you know, as you said, fragrance-free soap and it finds a place in your body. It seems kind of holistic and gentle. And mm-hmm. then elect- marrying that with electronics would seem to be extremely off-putting, even if it could tell you this information. And then the second question is, how many women really want to know this information? Right. Um, and an ironic thing about Loon Cup, as it's currently proposed, is that the battery only lasts for six months. It's not rechargeable according to what they're currently planning. And so you have to get a new one after six months, whereas, uh, you know, a traditional old-fashioned just plain silicone menstrual cup will last for years. So it kind of defeats the sort of environmentally friendly purpose of uh, of menstrual cups. Is it called Loon Cup because of the it's moon? A, are Canadians involved or um, are they just admitting it's kind of no, a No, it was idea? actually the idea of uh, an inventor from South Korea whose girlfriend was having bad menstrual cramps. He first invented an app to help women track their periods, which is like something I'm in favor of. I use an app to track my period. It can be useful. Sure. And then he decided, you know what I need to do? I need to connect a menstrual cup to my app. So that that's where this idea came from. Loon, L-O-O-N, doesn't have great connotations. Uh, it refers to birds. It refers to crazy people sometimes. But the meaning that it is supposed to have in this context is it's just a combination of, of moon and luna, you yes. know, which is the, I guess, the... Right, a, a combination of moon Latin. and a different word yes, for moon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they might, they said, according to an FAQ that they sent me, that they might change the name to L-U-N-E, which has a slightly clearer meaning. Yes, Let's tell ourselves, let's just get over the hurdle of even questioning if there's a market. What are the roadblocks for the FDA approving this thing? Well, so actually the FDA recently, as in like two months ago, decided to make it easier for menstrual cup manufacturers to produce their product and sell it. Before two months ago, manufacturers had to send in paperwork just sort of like letting the FDA know that they were doing this thing and like sending them the specs so that the FDA could could review it and be like, okay, this looks good. Now, most menstrual cups uh, manufacturers do not have to do that anymore. But this change in regulation seems like maybe bad timing because the Loon Cup is clearly something new and different. And even though it claims, if you look at the Kickstarter page, it claims this product is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical issues. Like, if you look at the claims, that's obviously what they're trying to do. They're saying that if they can detect the color of your menstrual fluid, then they will be able to tell you if you have, like, fibroids or an infection. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, It's definitely under the FDA's purview. The FDA has the right to basically force them to send in a bunch of paperwork before they start selling it. There's a big gray area in terms of what constitutes marketing when it comes to crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter. And traditionally, Kickstarter has shied away from medical devices just because there's a lot of regulation around medical devices. Oh, I see. With Kickstarter, fundraising is marketing in a way. Is it marketing or is it just like raising capital so that you can do more research? Right. Well, clearly it's it's both. And that's that's a benefit to Kickstarter. That's a selling point, except when there are laws involved with the FDA. So we don't, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. Maybe the FDA will just like let them go ahead and sell it. But I am guessing it's going to be a little bit tough for Loon Cup to actually get on the market, which is to say, like, that's if they actually end up with a working prototype. It seems from the information that they've shared so far that they have not manufactured 
any of these cups so far. So, so who knows? Who knows, really? <laughs> Laura Anderson is our expert on all sorts of things. But thank you for talking about the menstrual cup. Thank Laura. you, Mike. Mailing and shipping are a routine part of your business. They're important keep your operations going. But, you know, if you go into the post office all the time, it's a routine that needs to change. There's a much more convenient way, stamps.com. It brings the post office right to your desk. Not the smell, but the efficiency. You buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You print postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, and then just hand your mail to the mail carrier. You don't have to waste time going to the post office again. You can focus on what really matters, growing your business. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code, the gist for this special offer. A four-week trial, $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. That's right. They give you the digital scale. Sometimes I talk all about the digital scale. I don't want you to take it for granted. It's a really good scale and you get it when you sign up. When you go to stamps.com, before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. So was the Scottish band, the Cranberries, who talked about their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns. But come on, there are so many more weapons than that. And that's why from time to time, all right, this is the second time, we do munitions talk, a roundup of rounds, if you will. And joining us as always, and by the way, as always, I mean, for the second straight time in a row, our returning champion, Rebecca Grant, who is director of Iris Independent Research, and she worked with RAND and the Air Force. In fact, she was director of the General Billy Mitchell Institute for Air Power Studies at the Air Force Association. He's the father of the Air Force, right, Rebecca? He was, absolutely. I'm impressed with that. Well, let's go from air to sea and let's talk about submarine sails. Here is a headline that actually doesn't quite make sense, but you can make sense of it for me. Submarine sails skyrocket in Asia. Okay, we know that submarines don't do that. But why are Asian countries on a sub shopping spree? We might say Asian nations surfing the submarine market. There is a. Oh, wait, I got it, I got it. They take the plunge when it comes to submarines, yeah. (laughs) Asian submarines bubbling to the top, all those. But one of the reasons for the popularity of submarines is that they do a lot of other missions we don't always think about. Submarines are really good at creeping up close to another ship or a coastline and listening for radio and other electronic emissions. So they have a little bit of a covert snooping and sniffing role as well. And that makes them particularly valuable intelligence contributors sometimes. And really there's probably one thing that's driving the skyrocketing submarine sales in Asia, and that is the rise of China. China's a big piece of that. Of course, the U.S. also has some big submarine modernization programs going on, too. But we see lots of different countries, China, Australia, many others that are working on submarine programs and being very active in the undersea environment. I think this is true. I don't know if you could correct me, but since World War II, there have only been three submarine kills, right, which is the torpedoes firing in an act of war. One was in the Falklands. One was during the Indo-Pakistani War. And in fact, five years ago, a North Korean submarine sank a South Korean ship. You are spot on. I am impressed. There have been relatively few kills, but that's enough to tell you it's still a bit of an active environment. And, of course, 
the U.S. Navy keeps submarines regularly on patrol. For the U.S., we have, there is a, a section of the fleet, the Ohio-class submarines are part of the nuclear deterrent. With the other nations we're looking at, we're mostly looking at attack submarines, which, of course, the U.S. has plenty of those as well. So we have a pretty diverse submarine fleet. Most of the others we're looking at are attack subs that are all about maintaining sea superiority and pose a threat primarily to surface ships. So speaking of North Korea, an interesting country, the Hermit Kingdom, and I think so much of the uncertainty makes people even more nervous. A few years ago, people who do this sort of thing and watch North Korean military parades saw what they thought was a new missile, the KN-08. But then there was a lot of debate that went to the internet, some version of munitions Reddit subforum, I don't know, and they were debating, is this a real missile? Was this just made up to look like a missile? Could you tell us what the KN-08 is, was, and did it really exist? And did it really exist? I think it's real. Mm -hmm. We know North Korea has a pretty extensive missile arsenal. They have about a thousand missiles or so. They started out with very short-range missiles from the Soviet Union, the Scud class. They renamed them. They've adapted them. But here's why I say that missile capability is real. First of all, State Department and Defense Department, they don't like to give out details, but they say that it is possible for North Korean missiles to hit U.S. territory. Now, they may be talking maybe Guam, Alaska primarily, but they have not been specific, but they have said in their own quiet way, yes, they've got capabilities. Second, do you remember, Mike, back in 2012, North Korea actually succeeded in launching a satellite, Mm -hmm. a little bit like uh, Sputnik back in 1957 when the Soviet Union put something up in orbit. And so I, think, finally, I think not much more advanced than Sputnik, not, Probably not much more advanced. But the point there is that if they can put something in orbit, even if they maybe don't get it exactly where they want it to go, right. then they have the capability. In fact, um, the State Department at that time said that any rocket that's capable of placing an object in orbit is directly relevant to developing ballistic missile capabilities. Basically, the technology is interchangeable. It means they can boost and loft and guide an object up into orbit. And that means they can boost and loft it up and guide it to a place where it can come back down. That gives you an intercontinental missile. Hmm. How worried should we be about this? Well, North Korea is always a worry because we just don't know what they're going to do. I'm not sure this is any more worrying than some of their other projects, but I think um, it's something that we've been watching a long time. And this really is more than just a, a backyard project. They've had help all along also from initially from Russia, possibly also from China. So I think they have a real capability. I think our military is on top of it, and we've seen this threat coming for many years. That's one reason we're developing our own ground-based interceptors up in Alaska. And of course, our theater missile defense picket remains in place. All right, let's talk. I think every time, by every time, I mean both times, we'd like to talk about Russian tanks. The Russians love their tanks. In fact, they had an international tank biathlon championship. What? (laughs) What? And did you know, Mike, they invited the U.S. to oh, that championship. That's I know nice of them. <laughs> we couldn't go. 
they say that uh, they invited um, Secretary Kerry. They gave him a letter and said that the U.S. was welcome to send a team. <laughs> but uh, the U.S. did not. This sounds a little a like this sounds like a little like Trump saying he'll donate millions of dollars to Obama if he gives his academic records. It's the sort of invitation you know is going to get turned down. Do you think maybe Donald Trump will be invited to the tank biathlon next year? Maybe he could put in an entry. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, maybe even you and I could go because what you do is you show up with your team and you get a Russian tank. You can check out one of their T-72s and paint it up with your own national colors for the competition. So they've actually held this biathlon for a few years. One nation, of course, wanted to do it their own way, and that was China, who brought their own tank. But the other 16 participants used Russian tanks. And, Mike, I guess you probably can't guess who won the biathlon. <laughs> is it, does it have anything to do with the fact how, how well Putin does in presidential elections over there? Is it similar? <laughs> does the winner start with an R? Yeah. And yeah. what's funny to me is I read that the team from Kazakhstan was in the lead, but somehow they slipped back to fourth. <laughs> So they're pretty smart there in Kazakhstan. I think someone said, oh, no, let's pull over and wait for the Russians. You know what? I think the the Kazakhstan team lost on purpose. In other words, they tanked. They tanked. (laughs) They tanked. So it's it's like the Olympic biathlons where you ski on cross-country skis Mm -hmm. and then you shoot at the targets. And someone from Norway or Finland always wins. Same thing with the tanks. They run this 20-kilometer course going over streams and ditches and bridges and shooting targets as they pop up. And then, of course, the winner was Russia. And I'm looking forward to the 2016 installment of the Tank Biathlon. Maybe it'll be televised. I'm getting my tickets now. But the last question, and this brings to mind, you know, this conflict in Ukraine is horrible, but is it useful for U.S. intelligence? Do we see some of the uh, latest Russian technology, Russian military technology? Are we getting a glimpse of what they could do, or are they holding it back and not using their good stuff? Interesting, the quote-unquote latest. I think it's always useful to see not only the hardware they bring, but what the level of training is. And of course, anytime the hardware is out, they want to do the electronic sniffing and snooping and find out more about how these things work. So I hope we have... uh, plenty of uh, U.S. or Western-friendly observers seeing what's going on over there. It's been thought for a long time that the Russians are not at a particularly high state of readiness compared to where they were, of course, many, many years ago during the Cold War. But I wonder if we won't start to see some closer evaluation of where they are strong and where they still have their weaknesses. could be very interesting to watch the academic journals and the military journals as they digest what's going on in Ukraine. That is Rebecca L. Grant. She is the director of Iris Independent Research, and she will be entering actually a tank heptathlon, which includes not just the regular tank competition, but lip sync, trivia, and a 20K fun run. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Four bags, oh sour grapes. With the score tied in the bottom of the seventh of a decisive game five in Toronto yesterday, Blue Jays slugger Jose Bautista stood in against the Rangers' Sam Dyson. Here's what happened next. Oh, what a game, huh? Robbers out the corners, two outs.
Now, perhaps you were clued in by the Fox Sports announcer yelling, by the super loud foghorn, by the crowd erupting, or by the sound of most of Canada jumping up and down as if they had just added medicinal poutine to nationalized health care. But there was a lot of excitement there. These were some happy Canadians. Chief among them, Jose Bautista, the man who actually hit the home run, because he did something, well, something that may be too shocking to contemplate. Let's listen to ESPN describe the action of the man they call Joey Bats. Joe Bats! And watch what he does with his bat. <laughs> Chill, I'm not sure I've ever seen a bat flip or bat throw quite like this. Well, as long as he just goes down to first base the next year when... When they when hit him, when the response comes, and sure. they're going to hit him. I mean, I get the emotion piece of this. Play the game, just but you know, I get it. Yes, Jose Bautista flipped his bat quite proudly, not unlike a majorette at halftime in the Cotton Bowl. If the majorette had no concern with catching the damn thing. Now, Kurt Schilling, the disgraced former video game executive and evolution skeptic who ESPN employs for perspective and context, he predicted, probably accurately, that Bautista would be thrown at the next time he faces the Rangers because of his poor sportsmanship. Yes, in baseball, given the choice between the team that did something amazing and was happy about it and the team who did something poorly and lashes out as a result, given those two parties, it is the revenge taker who attempts to inflict bodily injury who is held up as the enforcer of good sportsmanship. Because after all, impressionable children are watching this. You heard in that clip, that ESPN clip I played, alongside Kurt Schilling, who once compared Muslims to Nazis, you heard ESPN baseball reporter Tim Kirkchin at least tacitly endorsing the idea that flipping out over a flip bat is anything other than flipping ridiculous. And I think it is ridiculous, but I also think it's interesting because sports is sociology and sports allows us to talk about, I'm going to say, even bigger issues. So let's back up half a step. Let's examine who it was who firmly injected the idea of bat flip umbrage into the fiery furnace, that hot takery bakery that is sports media. We first heard the complaint emanate from the losing clubhouse, and it was put forth by the victimized pitcher himself, Sam Dyson. You know, Jose needs to calm that down, just kind of respect the game a little more. I mean, he's a huge role model for... uh, you know, the younger generation that's coming up playing this game. And, I mean, he's doing stuff that, you know, kids do on wiffle ball games and, you know, backyard baseball, and it, sh- it shouldn't be done. I think Dyson's wrong, but I understand the emotion piece, as Kurt Schilling would say. Dyson is an aggrieved party. He's lashing out. He's trying to find anything to deflect attention. He's psychologically employing a type of armor so he doesn't have to dwell on the fact that his poor performance largely cost his team the game, the series, the playoffs, and champagne in his eyes. A poll conducted on the website for Dan Patrick's radio show indicated that 20% of respondents had a problem with the bat flip. So 20% seems to be the size of the aggrieved anti-flip crowd. It's also the level of support an aggrieved political candidate can expect, perhaps not coincidentally. And while it's true that America is a country of reinvention, it's also a pretty efficient market. So if there's a way for someone to make money or advance his cause off of grievance nursing, then damn it, that grievance will be nursed. Nurse that grievance! 
We nurse our grievances at the ballot box, in the music we're drawn to, in the media we seek out that tells us we're right, that our ways are the right ways, but that they're being threatened. It's exactly the case with this unwritten code of baseball, which suppresses elation, which enforces bean balls and hard slides and other types of injurious payback. It's a code that's old, that's white, that's mostly Southern white. When you think about it, it doesn't even make sense to contemplate offense at a bat flip, except for the fact that there is this ongoing subset of this subculture who supports the idea that to be aggrieved is proper. There's no such constituency in hockey telling a goal scorer not to jump up and down on his skates after an overtime goal or even throw his stick. That happens. What about a soccer player who rips off his jersey upon clinching a shootout? That's fine. Or a basketball player who exults in a game-winning three-pointer. No one tells him to stop celebrating. It is not a natural part of the human condition to think that a triumphant athlete should act anything less than triumphant. Except in baseball, with its endorsed culture of grievance which mirrors our societal culture of grievance. Here's the good thing. I think the grievers are a dying breed. In fact, definitionally they are. The winners don't grieve, the losers do. Most reasonable people are in the 80% who say something like, cut the guy a break, or he was happy, or they go even further and say, if I hit that home run, I'd use my bat as a pogo stick around the bases. The key to me seems to be in allowing enough people that 80% to experience enough joy so that they recognize, maybe even feel the elation, not that they feel angry along with the loser. I said sports are great sociology, but sports also always has a winner. If a society doesn't want the grievers to gain too much control, it has got to make sure that enough of its players, its people, are winners too. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produced the gist. She was chastised for shouting chula a bit too loudly after expertly wielding her cesta at the fronton. Just executive producer Andy Bowers, though a champion rhythmic gymnast, had some of his championships sullied because of his over-exuberance with the ribbon. The gist, tossing cabers the way they were meant to be tossed. Um peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.